scripture comes from the Sermon on the Mount in two places, uh, first from the seventh chapter and then in the fifth chapter. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, did we not in your name prophesy and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will say plainly to them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And this from the fifth chapter on the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Rather, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of the pen of the law will disappear until all things are accomplished. Whoever casts aside even the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. You may remember that scene we have mentioned before. It is Paris, 1918. And at the end of the First World War, there are 50 French veterans who are suffering from shell shock. And because of that, they have amnesia. And they build a large stage and they set up a primitive uh, public address system by our standards. And the crowd gathers, and one by one, each of the 50 French veterans goes to the microphone and says this, Can anybody tell me who I am? And at the end of that, 49 of the 50 have been reunited with their original family. What a question. Can anybody tell me who I am? Last week, I tried to answer that question for you. I tried to tell you your identity is you are a beloved child of God, loved unconditionally by God. I tried to answer that for you, and if you've not heard the sermon, I encourage you to go online, and you can get it and listen to it easily. It will be and is significant to our thinking about the Christian life together. But what I've found is this. That in my own life, in the life of other people I know, it's very hard to live out that identity as a child of God. And not only that, even though we have this wonderful message of a home, a place, unconditional love and acceptance, the rest of the world around us doesn't seem very attracted to what we offer. Something has gone amiss. So I asked this morning, what's up with this? Why isn't it that people who know themselves to be children of God have such difficulty living it out in their lives? And why is it when we have such a wonderful message of love and peace and acceptance, nobody around us seems very interested in it? I think I found a clue to what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says to, those, uh, to the disciples and some others who are following, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Now, this is a difficult and challenging verse, so let me give you a little background on it. Uh, By the time of Jesus, the common understanding among the teachers of the day about the kingdom of heaven was this. That the kingdom of heaven had three movements. The first movement was when God showed up. And God showed up in in power and love because God's power is love. And and God uh, would do things. And they call when God shows up and acts in power the finger of God. Because believe me, if God brought his whole hand, you wouldn't be able to handle it and this universe would not be standing. So they call that action the finger of God. That's why sometimes when we do the Shema, you may see people with their their little finger upraised. It's to remind us that there's more power in God's finger than in all the universe. Or as my friend Scott Hare says, it may also be that people are begging, please God, bring your finger into my situation. But it starts with the finger of God. The second thing is that when people see God acting, they respond and they believe in God and they cry out, you're my Lord and God. Lord, Lord, they say. And then the third part of the movement was after they've cried out, Lord, Lord, then they repent and they change their lives and they live obediently in the way that God wants them to live. Now, this pattern started with the Exodus, and it continues all the way through the history of ancient Israel and in the Hebrew Bible. But let's just look at it right now in the Exodus. People are enslaved. They don't really know God. They only serve Pharaoh. That's their only option. And yet God swoops in to free them. And when the finger of God acts, there are plagues. There are ten plagues, and they attack more than likely ten of the gods of Egypt, kind of from the least to the greatest, with the the greatest being Pharaoh thinking that he was God himself. And, of course, the last plague strikes Pharaoh's family. And in the middle of this, Pharaoh's court, who is gathered together, say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can't stop it. So all this action takes place. And uh, the, the plagues come. The people get released. They get to the Red Sea, and the finger of God acts again to seize parts, and they go across on dry ground. God acts. That's the first movement. Second movement, according to the end of Exodus chapter 14, is the people then trusted in the Lord. They feared the Lord, rather, and they trusted in his servant Moses. In other words, they said to God, we believe. Lord, Lord, you're God. That was awesome. And then the third part is God says to them, okay. I'm glad you get it. Now let me show you how to be my people. Let me show you what's involved in believing in me and loving me and takes them to Mount Sinai and gives them the Ten Commandments. And over and over in Scripture, this gets repeated. People get in a jam. God acts to get them out of the jam. They say, thank you, God. We love you. You're awesome. And God says, okay, now do this. This is how you love me. goes all the way through. So finally, Jesus shows up. And Jesus uh, does some wonderful things. People start uh, following him, and people start acclaiming him as Messiah and as Lord. But Jesus notices that there's something missing. There was that third piece. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, he looks out and says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven because you've missed the part. You've missed the third part, the part where we repent where we obey, where we do the things that the loving God calls us to do. Ray Vandeland puts it this way, and, and that is, he says, that obedience is God's love language. You may have heard that concept that each of us receives or wants to receive and experience love in different ways, and, and the way that I might want to receive and experience love may not be the way my spouse wants to or my, my children want to, and so we each have languages. And so when it comes to honoring God, God's not particularly interested in flowers or a call. 
God is interested. God's love language is do what I ask you to do. You're my children. Act like it. James, the brother of Jesus, figured this out pretty quickly. He wrote the early church. Believe? He goes on to say, even the demons believe. And they shudder. James was trying to say, if you believe, you've only got the first two parts. There's a third part. The way you act and the way you live. And I think when I read this that I began to understand more deeply what's going on in America today in terms of the Christian faith. Why we have trouble living into the fact that we are loved so completely and unconditionally. We have trouble because we don't really act like God's children. We're like a child who wants to say, well, can I borrow the keys? Can I have my allowance? Can I eat at the table? But we don't sleep at home. We don't come home at night. We don't ever mow the yard. We don't ever say thank you. We just take everything from the house and don't live according to the way everyone in the house is to live. Because of that, we start to experience a disconnect and begin to wonder whether we're children at all. And because we live that way, there is essentially then no difference between me and the, peop- the person who doesn't believe in God. We're pretty much the same. So why should they be attracted to this message when it hasn't changed me? There's a fascinating and rather a painful study that got put out in January. It's turned into a book. It was done by Rice University and the University of Notre Dame. And they studied the charity, giving to charity, of people in America, focusing, on, of course, on Christians. And what they found this was that the average American Christian gives less than 1% of their after-tax in, tax income to charity, all forms, church included. That's slightly more than the average non-religious person. And then the person who told the surveyors at Rice and at Notre Dame that they are extremely passionate about God. And they are in church frequently and, and, and Jesus is the center of their life. They gave almost 2% of their after-tax income. What the survey was saying is there was very little difference between the non-religious and the extremely religious. You go to volunteer hours, little or no difference between hours volunteered in the community between people who claim to be passionate about God and those who claim not to care about God at all. We're not living as the children of God. And when I don't do that, there's nothing to distinguish me from the non-believers and nothing to attract them to the message. So this is what I'm strongly suggesting this morning, that it is time in our practice of Christianity, for what I call the great transition. We need to move from just believing in Jesus to behaving like Jesus. We need to quit saying, Lord, Lord, and start doing the things that the Lord has asked us to do, to love and to care and to share. We need, in the words of Dallas Willard, to move from having faith in Jesus, which is foundational and very essential, to having the faith of Jesus. So it's not just believing in Jesus, but it's starting to do in our lives some of the things that Jesus did in his life. And when this transition happens, two things will occur, I believe. We'll begin to understand and see ourselves more deeply as God's children, and the rest of the world will get a little more interested in the message and the lifestyle that we are trying to put in front of them. But you might say, well, I thought you told me last week I was loved unconditionally. I thought that was sort of my get-out-of-jail-free card. This doesn't seem like grace or love. 
Well, let me make a few observations. First of all is, this is grace. The people who were enslaved in Egypt when this pattern first started didn't really know nor serve God, mostly. They only knew Pharaoh and lived according to Pharaoh's world. And yet God barged into that world and gave them the plagues to show them that God existed and was greater than Pharaoh. And if that's all God had ever done, they said that would be enough. But God did more than that. God parted the Red Sea and got them out of Egypt into the wilderness. And if that was all that God had ever done, they said that would be enough. But then God helped them survive in the wilderness for 40 years. And they began to say, if that's all God had ever done, that would be more than enough. But then God gave them the promised land and helped them conquer it. All of that was God's grace and gift. And when it came time, in the fullness of time for Jesus, on our behalf, he hung on a cross. If that is all Jesus ever did for us, that was way more than enough. It all starts in the love and grace of God. Secondly, it is an act of grace because I believe it's only through acting like a child of God that you will discover that you're a child of God. I told you last week that Scott Hare really helped me understand about the unconditional love of God and beginning to live it and apply it in my life. And Scott gave me a series of tapes by a guy who teaches on the subject. And in the very first tape, he said, you know, I go all over the country and people follow me around like groupies, he said. And I teach about the Father loves them unconditionally and they come to the altar and they go, oh, yes, wonderful, thank you, thank you. And then they come back again the next week because they've lost it. He said, I started to ask, why is this lost? And he said, what I realized, I found a verse in the scripture that said, submit to the Father's will. In other words, if you're in the Father's house, do what the Father asks you to do. And in doing so, you'll start to see yourself as a true child, as a true son. Well, on this Mother's Day, let me tell you about my mother. My mother gave birth to five children. I was the middle of five. And when my mother gave, was pregnant with me, she had polio. And she also fell down the stairs of a two-story home when she was pregnant with me. And I tell my kids today that's why I'm so abnormally smart. They, they tend to use it to explain to other things. My mother stayed at home with us when we were younger. But her calling was as a teacher. So as we got a little older, she would leave the home and go back to teach at school and then would bring in extra income, not for what we needed. We had more than we needed, but to give us even things she thought we would want. My mother always wore her compassion on her sleeve. It was from her that I, I learned to bleed with those who were bleeding and cry with those who were crying. That was her nature. My mother... In my last year of graduate school, when Pam and I just flat ran out of money, scholarship gone, loan spent, called my mother, and out of a separate account that she keep and kept herself, she funded my last semester of seminary. That's my mother. I've seen mom act. And I say, you know, mom has acted in my life. And furthermore, I tell you, I call her mom. I believe that she's mom. I believe that. I believe that. I call her mom. But, but, if I never did what she asked me to do, if I never followed any of the advice and direction she gave me in life, if I never remembered her with the visit or call or card, if when her health has taken a, a, a very sharp 
wrong turn. I ignored her. She would still be my mom. But I would not be experiencing life as a son. It is in all of this relationship with her and interacting with her and now with the tables turn and I get to care that I am more strongly than ever living in and claiming the fact that I am her son. It is the grace of God that we are told to live a certain way and when in living that way, we find that we really are God's children. One other note of grace. How in the world Will anybody ever come to understand God loves them? Is it going to be because we hold up John 3.16 signs when somebody's at the plate or they're kicking an extra point? Hardly. It's going to come when they see and experience it in our life. The way other people will know they are loved by God is what they see in you in your life. You will be a part of God beginning to parent and reparent this world. What do you think was Jesus' main message? Was it faith? Doesn't really seem to be. Was it belief? Talked about it some in John. Was it love? Talked about it some. If you do the research, the main message of Jesus is this. The kingdom of heaven is here. And what the people in Jesus' day would have understood, and maybe we've lost a little bit, is the way that the kingdom, you participate in the kingdom of God, is doing what God asked you to do. When you do what God asked you to do, you are bringing the kingdom of heaven to your part of the world. That was God's plan for the kingdom to spread. It was by you and I acting like the children of God, loving and sharing with other people. You might ask this morning, are you telling me that I'm not in? Are you telling me if I don't do all this, I'm not saved? I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you, if you don't do this, you're not part of what God is doing. You're not part of the most important thing in the heart of God and in the mind of Jesus, and that's bringing the kingdom of heaven. And I don't want you to miss it. And I don't want the world to miss it. It's time for us. To act like the children of God, and what will happen is we'll begin to believe it, and others will begin to see it. About the time of Jesus, the story is told of a rabbi deeply engrossed in either thinking about Scripture or reciting Scripture or making an application. So he's walking on the way to town, and absentmindedly he takes a wrong turn, fork in the road, and he went the wrong way. And he comes to a Roman garrison on the edge of the town. And so the sentry's on the wall, the garrison yells out, Halt! Who are you? What are you doing here? And the rabbi kind of gathers his senses and says, How much did they pay you? And he said, Well, two denarii a day. And he said, I'll double it if you'll follow me around and ask me those two questions every day. Who are you? You're a beloved child of God. What are you doing here? Your on purpose is to do what God asks you to do. And then you'll know you're loved by God. And just as importantly, others will know they are loved as well.